Hey, welcome to Arts Forward MKE. I'm Lindsay Sheridan, your host and director of marketing and PR at Imagine MKE. Thanks for spending some time with this show today. In this episode, I speak with Richard Hinson, music director of Belcanto Chorus. We hear about Rick's history and Belcanto's history in Milwaukee and their upcoming virtual Christmas concert offering. The song you're hearing now is Silent Night from a past Belcanto Christmas in the Basilica concert. This conversation was especially fun for me for a few reasons. I actually sing in Bel Canto and so have been rehearsing for the virtual concert this fall. Plus, Rick shares about how influential it was for him to grow up singing in Washington National Cathedral in DC, which is a space I worked in for several years on staff of a symphonic chorus there. So please visit Bel Canto's website, click on the link in the show description for info on the release of the virtual program on Friday, December 18th, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening. Hi, Rick. Thanks for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Lindsay, to share the arts in Milwaukee. <laughs> well, I'm really delighted to talk to you. And uh, disclaimer for the audience, kind of like a like a sponsor disclaimer or something on NPR. I sing in Belcanto, so I am particularly delighted to be able to talk with Richard Hinson today um, about his own background and about Bel Canto's work in Milwaukee. Um, so Rick, let's start with uh, diving back a bit. Um, do you remember a time early in life that you experienced art in a way that impacted you deeply, that stuck with you? Absolutely. I have, I have the quintessential story because uh, I not only had one experience, but I lived a whole life of artistic and and I would say spiritual experiences mm. that really determined my direction. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and uh, I got to join the choir of men and boys at the Washington Cathedral. Mm -hmm. uh, this was back in, um, you know, in the early 60s, really early 60s, late 50s, early 60s. Can you believe that? <laughs> uh, I could hardly believe it myself. But uh, we, uh, my, my parents had me audition for uh, the, the junior choir, which is quite, kind of the, the mm. introductory group to see whether or not you would be good enough to move up to the professional choir. Um, happily, I was able to make the cut and became uh, a member of this choir of men and boys. Uh, and at the same time, not only were we redoing all of this incredibly beautiful and uh, inspiring music from plain chant all the way up through commissioned works, mm -hmm. uh, especially for the cathedral, mm -hmm. um, but we were right in the midst of a cathedral being built. Mm, yeah. And that experience in, in this age uh, in which Buildings are built to be torn down, you know, decades later, or um, things are designed to be replaced to yeah. build a, a cathedral using, you know, techniques from the Middle Ages and creating sculpture and stained glass and, and an architecture that is uh, thousands of years old. And that's, that's the kind of, of experience in which I was singing regular, you know, daily services. We sang yeah. even song four days a week during the uh, work week. And then we sang uh, either a communion service or a, uh, a morning prayer 
and an evensong service every Sunday. So uh, we lived at the cathedral. We were there every day practicing, and and so we were constantly surrounded by, you know, all these sculptors and and artisans that were building a cathedral, mm-hmm. and that that became kind of a metaphor for my life. That you know, cathedrals aren't very practical. But what do they do? They reach up to the heavens. They're, you know, just the architecture itself mm-hmm. is um, an acknowledgement of the scope and beauty of, of faith and spirituality. So mm-hmm. um, it, it was an, an enormous influence in my life. Yeah. Uh, and happily, because I was involved with that, I, I was a choir boy, then I was the soloist. Um, and because the director was also involved in uh, Washington Opera Company and and was doing all sorts of uh, additional artistic endeavors in in the community. He invited me to come sing, and so I premiered an opera. I you know I I was the first American choir boy to sing a solo in Westminster Abbey. Oh, in fact, you can see that that sign right behind me. Wow! Yeah, from the uh, the nine hundredth anniversary of the founding of Westminster Abbey. <laughs> That's incredible. What was the solo? Uh, it was a, uh, actually I did several of them. One was mm. by um, one of the cathedral composers, uh, Richard Wayne Dirksen. Yes. And uh, um, I think I did a Howells piece. There were, you know, there was just service music. It wasn't anything grand or glorious, but, but nevertheless, I was, um, I was able to, to uh, share my voice uh, as a soloist in, mm. the, in the Abbey. Mm-hmm. So that kind of experience kind of set me up for what, what I was to do later. What an incredible introduction to music. And for those that aren't familiar um, with church services necessarily, even song is done early evenings, right? Every day. And so what a great way as a young, young kid to just sort of live and breathe music, that it just becomes this craft that you get to refine every single day. Every uh, single. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I personally, you know this about me, but our listeners won't, <laughs> um, is that I, I worked in that same cathedral that you're talking about um, for, a, for a chorus much like Bel Canto. Um, so not for the choir, the professional choir that, that you were involved in as a kid, um, but for a, a community chorus. Um, and I know just how magnificent that building is as well. Um, and how, especially as a young kid, how absolutely huge that must have seemed. I mean, normal settings seem seem huge as a kid right <laughs> so the cathedral even more so right. yeah yeah and while i was there so not only did i sing at the cathedral but i also i worked as a you know in the summers i i uh, in fact i couldn't get a job i was still too young to get a work permit so i would go over to the uh, stone yards because mm. when it was being built all these marvelous blocks of limestone from indiana would be shipped in and, and laid out it was like doing a big uh, crossword, um, a jigsaw puzzle, excuse me, Chris, uh, jigsaw puzzle. And yeah. so these pieces all had numbers on them. Mm-hmm. And uh, later on, I'd learn about those numbers because when I was in college, I worked as a, a stonemason's helper and, and would cart the, the stones to mm-hmm. these, these um, lifts that looked like they were right out of the Middle Ages, literally, because mm-hmm. they were all done by hand. And the, although they used a lot of ele- electronic equipment, the, the building techniques were such that they, 
uh, you know, they were using pulleys and jacks and all these <laughs> mechanical tools that were, you know, available in the 1300s. So, mm -hmm. so I got to do that. I, I, <laughs> I met the guy who put together all the stained glass, one of the principal carvers, uh, one of my, the life stories that I got from him. He was an Italian gentleman, a young, he, he was, he was about my, to my shoulder. He was so short. His name was Roger Morigi, and Roger uh, was carving the bosses, as you remember. So the cathedral is the tenth largest cathedral in the world. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's um it's a quarter, almost a quarter mile from the west end to the east end, mm -hmm. and the bosses, which are those big stones that meet at the apex of all of the arches, That's the right. bosses all the way along the wall represent the Apostles' Creed. Mm -hmm. the, see the yeah. Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, but I think it's the Apostles' Creed. Yeah. He was charged with carving each scene from this creed uh, from east to west. <laughs> well, those stones are uh, 100 feet off the ground. They're so high up. And, right. and he, so he spent a lot of time up there. And I, I would go up there in the scaffolding with him. He what, let me watch him carve. And they use the old, you know, hammer and and uh, totally fearless. That, oh yeah, that height. <laughs> yeah, 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 I wasn't afraid then. I wouldn't be so sure now. <laughs> yeah. But he told so he was interviewed as they, as they he was finishing that project, and the reporter asked him, "So, Roger, you you spend so much time on these carvings, and you're doing way more detail than anybody will ever be able to see from mm -hmm. the ground." Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he said, "Ah, but God sees." Mm -hmm. And that, to me, uh, epitomized not only the work of the cathedral, but the work of artists. Right. Because right. what we as artists do is not so much for the casual onlooker. Mm. Uh, and it, while we certainly express through our art for an audience, right. the truth is that for an artist, the making of the art itself is a contained mm. source of expression. Mm. Once the piece is written, once the carving is made, once the painting is done, then it, it, it's like a child that then goes off and has its own life. Right. You're done and with it and you hope right. that it will have the impact that it had on you in, in making it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then yeah. for recreative artists like you and I, so you're a singer and I'm a singer and conductor, what we do is we revivify. We we take a, a what is essentially a blueprint, which is the piece of music that we're going to perform, mm -hmm. and we try to give that two-dimensional um, set of instructions a life, and it's a unique yeah. life. You know, once we we rehearse it and we we try to emphasize certain things, we try to bring out certain colors, we use it to. Um, help demonstrate the skills of the chorus, of the mm -hmm. singer. Mm -hmm. All of that works together to become a performance. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, so that cathedral experience, again, has set the tone for me in terms of how I look at music, how I look at performance, you know, what, my, what I think the role of art is mm -hmm. in society. Mm -hmm. I think what's also interesting about a 
a cathedral space like that, actually, while we're on it, I'm sure there's a more eloquently said metaphor than whatever I'm about to try, but that in the the vastness of a huge space like that, it's it's easy to just kind of take it all in and just be in awe. But in actuality, like every every foot of space in there is a different piece of art. There's the carvings, there's the needlepoint, there's the stained glass. Right. Um, and it invites you to notice in a way that you might not when you just kind of take in the big picture. And the, and I think the same can be said about art in, in much less um, grandiose spaces, right? <laughs> Where it's inviting you to notice and kind of take a step away from just kind of passing by it. Yeah. 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 My mother was head of the altar guild. She, she mm. had almost a hundred volunteers at her disposal and they, they created flower arrangements for the 16 altars yeah. that are in that place. Um, plus all the boss, all the, all of the various uh, extra sprays and arrangements that they had all over. So her art, which was, I like to think was enormously important and appreciated was um, very temporary. You know, the flowers would go up one week and people yeah. would appreciate it for the week and then they'd all go away and the next week's flowers would come up. Yeah. It was like our, our performing in the services. Mm -hmm. you know, we would sing and the music would be heard in that space and mm -hmm. people would be touched or not, you know, mm -hmm. but they, we would put it out there and then it was gone. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the balance between plastic art, you know, the, the architecture and the, mm -hmm. the stained glass and the carvings and temporal art mm -hmm. were constantly complementing each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. I love that as well. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about the path that took you from that small choir boy to where you are now. How did you, how and when did you know being a conductor is for me? And, um, and walk us through that a bit, yeah. Well, so I thought my career would be uh, as a singer. Mm. You know, I, as a boy, I had no idea um, how difficult singing was. I just did it and, and I was lucky to um, sing well, naturally. Mm -hmm. And so I did all this solo work. I, as I said, I was in operas and broadcasts. I did lots of, of live performance solo work mm -hmm. for a couple of years. And then my voice changed. Mm. And suddenly this easy production that I had no trouble with at all suddenly turned into a reedy little, you know, tenor voice that to me was... Uh, it was the bane of my existence, actually, because I, I, I then I, I actually tried to pursue singing, still mm -hmm. thinking that I, you know, if you want something badly enough, you can achieve. Mm -hmm. Well, I, so I did my undergraduate work as in vocal performance, mm -hmm. and you know, I studied hard. I gave two senior recitals, you know, twice as I did twice as much work as everybody else, <laughs> thinking that if I just tried harder. Yeah. That I would be able to achieve. And, and what, uh, in looking back at it now, I, I see that it really set me up for conducting because, so I got to graduation and I was auditioning for graduate schools and they all said the same thing to me that, you know, you have all these skills and you're, but, but you don't have a voice. 
-hmm. And in American performance spaces, that they're all huge. You know, look at our own PAC. Right. Uh, Eline Hall is gigantic. I mean, it's you know, it's a mm -hmm. four thousand seat auditorium, mm -hmm. and so most opera and concert halls are large like that in this country. So you need um, an extraordinarily large voice in order to be successful here in the United States. Right. Um, and so competitive that exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hugely competitive. Mm -hmm. So um, a friend of mine, uh, I have had a number of serendipitous events throughout my life, but mm -hmm. a friend of mine was going to audition at a little school called Westminster Choir College sure. in Princeton, New Jersey. Now it's, it, it is uh, small but mighty mm -hmm. because it uh, is actually one of the seminal locations for choral singing in the United States. That's right. It, and it I sounds like it sounds like you've gone overseas, but it's, but it's right here. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I went to audition. I was behind me and they'd already closed their auditions. They, you know, they sent me the music and in three days, there wasn't internet at that point. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I got these pieces in the mail and I had a, two days to prepare me. It was, it was just yeah. one of these funny things that I thought, well, I'll try. So I rode um, with her to the, audition. She auditioned for organ and got in and I auditioned with the Westminster Choir, which was, you know, one of the premier choirs of, of the world, actually, mm -hmm. um, at that point, conducted by um, Joseph uh, Flummerfeld. Named Joseph Flummerfeld, exactly mm -hmm. right. And Flummerfeld uh, was gracious enough to accept me mm. and uh, I actually became his graduate assistant. Mm -hmm. And at so that's how I got into conducting and is, is this, you know, weekend uh, chance excursion to Westminster because I just didn't know what else to do. I wanted to be in performing and mm -hmm. this was as close as I could get to singing mm -hmm. without actually being the singer. Right, right. But, I, um, but at Westminster, I didn't do so well at first. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I did fine. I did okay, but not the way I thought I should be doing. Mm -hmm. And what I realized was that I was, uh, two things. I was still mourning, giving up singing, mm -hmm. deciding I couldn't be a singer. And also, I didn't really get this conducting stuff. <laughs> I didn't understand what the communication was because the conductors I'd always had had been, um, that's not good, do it again. That's not good, do it again. You know, there was no real rehearsing. There was no offering of technique, there was no um, exploration of what's going on behind the music to help, uh, uh, to help the rehearsal process along. Mm -hmm. So I really didn't understand what I was supposed to be except mean. <laughs> so I, and I didn't do that very well. Right. So um, it might uh, be effective for some, but is not, yeah, exactly. <laughs> not innate for you. Yeah. yeah. And so I was, I was also, as part of my graduate assistantship, I was managing the tours for Westminster, for all the various choirs. Mm -hmm. And so I was negotiating with the New York Philharmonic because the Westminster Symphonic Choir was the, was the uh, choir for the New York Philharmonic. Mm -hmm. And we also performed with Boston Symphony and with Philadelphia Orchestra. We went as far as Pittsburgh uh, one time during my, my term there and um, the Washington National Symphony, mm -hmm. another one, Baltimore, we performed with all in the two years that I was there. So I was setting up all of these 
um, all of these tours and arranging hotels and negotiating contracts. And I was good at that. It was very concrete. I understood that and I could do that. Yeah. So I, I'll never forget this. I was, I was most of the way through, halfway through my first year. And uh, the guy who was helping me with these, the, the professor was overseeing my work with this management took me aside and said, you know, you're really good at this arts management stuff. Maybe you should do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I didn't want to do that. <laughs> and then probably- Not then, as exciting. It's not well, as exciting. Yeah, yeah. It, wasn't the, it, was, it wasn't making art. Yeah. And, yeah. and what I discovered was that um, although I was good at it, it didn't satisfy me. It was mm. not joyful or fulfilling. Uh, this fulfillment is what I was really hungry for. Um, and so one day though, a contract that I had worked up, um, I, I don't really remember what the problem was, but there was a problem with it. Mm. And so I got called in and, and uh, told in no uncertain terms, you really screwed this up. You've got to fix it. Mm. Well, you know, I wasn't doing well with the art side and now I'd screwed up in this and so I just was uh, a mess mm. a whole six hours I think I did I went away and hidden a you know curled into a little ball and said mm. what am I doing with my life mm -hmm. um, but the but the next thing I had to be at was my conducting class mm -hmm. Flummer felt and you know the graduate conducting class and so I'll, I'll never forget this I, I conducted the Agnus Day movement of the Foray Requiem. Mm. And all of this emotion that I had it roiling inside me, you know, was, just came pouring out uh, in this class, yeah. in conducting these singers. And Flummerfeld took me aside after the class and he said, let's go get some coffee. And, and he said to me, at, as we sat together, he said, that's the first time I've seen you conduct. Mm. Uh, so hmm. the term ended and summer started. And so I stayed on campus and Robert Shaw came each summer at that time to Westminster to lead three weeks worth of, of workshops and performances yeah. that they that would do in Carnegie Hall. They would perform, um, they'd rehearse at Westminster and then go in to the city and hmm. perform major works. Well, I and remind known. and remind people who don't might not know Robert Shaw is a pretty huge name. Tell us, oh, yeah. Robert Robert Shaw is the dean of choral music. Yeah. yeah, he was really the one to make to take choral music out of the academic realm mm -hmm. and and the um, religious realm and bring it into professional performance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he he uh, worked with Toscanini. He worked with with all of the, Leonard Bernstein mm -hmm. uh, was also one who praised Shaw as one of the greatest, not only choral conductors, but conductors of the American, the American music scene. Yeah, yeah. And Shaw was, and, and so Shaw was incredible. He would rehearse um, the, way the, the way these workshops worked is that people from all over the country would audition by tape and then they'd be invited um, if they passed the audition to come and they'd sit for two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon and li listen to him 
not only rehearse these pieces, but offer his insight and wisdom mm-hmm. uh, and his stories about this music that pulled us all in. It made the whole rehearsal experience, instead of, you know, a drudge uh, or a chore, yeah. into this joyful sharing of history and theology and music. And uh, it was the way I hope my rehearsals have have become because I wanted people to to uh, to enjoy music the way I did and Mm -hmm. finally I saw a conductor who did just that he -hmm. made everybody enjoy the 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 hard work of rehearsing yeah he wasn't and and he didn't have lower standards because of that enjoyment in fact it was by urging us on rather than demanding that he got better results Sure, absolutely. So, so I, I, I think I really mark that as the time when I really started to become a conductor. I started mm-hmm. to understand what this communication process was and how I could use use that conducting style to edify my own personality. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I'm not this kind of, you know, authoritarian person. So how could I do that as a as an artist? Yeah, I, I'm much more of a, I believe myself to be more of a facilitator. I, I ask people to bring their very best and join with me, not mm-hmm. do it because I'm telling them which hoop to jump through and how high and all that. Yeah, yeah. That is the antithesis of music making. Yeah. Mm. It's nice to hear, well, this is how, you know, how small the choir world is, right? It's nice to hear Flummerfeld's name when I worked for the choir at the National Cathedral, we had him come as a guest conductor uh, one season and he, he led the Christmas concerts that year, actually, appropriately enough. Um, and uh, what a, his, his presence was that of, of someone that was clearly great, um, but also genuinely very warm and kind um, and approachable and he, it was, it was a joy to have a chance to work with him. So, yeah. Yeah. He's, he was an amazing man and he just, just died a couple of years ago. I mean, yeah. Been, yeah. Uh, he had an, uh, an, not quite the, the, the sweeping sea change uh, effect that Robert Shaw did. Yeah. But, uh, Leonard Bernstein also could, I mean, he labeled Flummerfeld the, the best choral conductor in the world. Yeah, he was choral conductors all over the place, and he yeah. felt Flummer felt to be the greatest. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's lots about Flummer felt that I admire so, and and brought into my own experience mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, tell us your Milwaukee origin story. What brought you here? It was the opportunity with Bel Canto, right? It was. So Bel Canto is is. Uh, a lot older than I am, happily. <laughs> it was started in 1931, and so I'm actually mm. the fourth music director. Wow. The yeah. third music director, Jim Keeley, also was uh, you know, a music director for a long time, he, uh, 35 years, something like that. And he took that group from a small, uh, you know, octavo concert kind of, of uh, group in, and turned it into a symphonic chorus. Mm-hmm. No, there wasn't the Milwaukee Symphony at that time. There wasn't the Symphony Corps, certainly. Sure. And so uh, Jim 
really brought um, the choral art into the forefront of Milwaukee um, music communities experience. Mm -hmm. And um, when Jim performed things, he loved opera too. So he'd of often do opera scenes and, and then he'd bring somewhat aging, but, but still wonderful Met stars to come and sing huh. uh, performances. He'd do, he mm. loved Verdi especially. So he'd mm. do Verdi Requiem, but he'd also do um, scenes from various operas. Sure. And so Jim did a remarkable job creating what the city needed at the, at the time. When I came, uh, by that point, the Milwaukee Symphony was um, what had been around for a while and, and mm. was doing very well. Yeah. Jim had had a little, um, well, I don't know, an altercation with uh, Skirmerhorn, who was the conductor of the Milwaukee Symphony at the time. And so that gave Skirmerhorn the opportunity to say, I don't want to use bel canto as the symphony chorus anymore. I'm going to use my own. So yeah, that yeah. gave Margaret Hawkins the green light to start uh, a symphony chorus. Mm -hmm. So by the time I got here, bel canto had been eclipsed in many ways because sure, uh, sure. in this in the 50s and 60s when Jim was conducting it, uh, it was the thing that that happened. You know there was. Um, uh, you know, we had the Florentine Opera, which is still around. Florentine Opera is almost as old as Bel Canto. Mm -hmm. But there was no sky. Skylight was started about the same time as Bel Canto. Wow. Under Jim Keeley. Yeah. Jim Keeley uh, and Claire Richardson, in fact, uh, their performances of, their two-man performances of Gilbert and Sullivan <laughs> were the kind of the seed that then launched uh, Claire Richardson into creating the Skylight Opera. Mm -hmm. So uh, the so the arts organizations that uh, existed then were many fewer than the ones that we have today. Right. But once the symphony got going, uh, a lot of the uh, cultural and social energy and dollars went to the symphony. And bel canto uh, languished a little bit. Mm. And Jim was struggling. You know, Jim had been doing it for a long time, and he was kind of tired. And <clears throat> so the group was. There were calls, public calls in the newspaper for bel canto to go. Mm. You know, just get rid of it. Whole campaign. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was in this atmosphere that um, they decided that you know Jim retired. And they did a year of guest conductors and then with, with the idea that they would then hire a new music director. Sure, yeah. One of the guest conductors was um, another notable name in the choral world, Robert Page. Mm. Now I just worked with Robert Page in a, um, I'd studied with him and then several other luminaries like Andrew Davis and um, mm -hmm. what is now Chorus America was called the Association of Professional Vocal Ensembles back then, APBE. And they were looking for the next generation of great conductors, mm -hmm. uh, such as it was. And so um, they had nationwide auditions, and I was lucky enough to be part mm. of that group. Mm -hmm. And I think there were nine of us. Anyway, they were, so there were <laughs> less than a dozen of us uh, picked from around the country to participate in, the, in this extraordinary two-week workshop 
Um, hmm. And Robert Page was there. Uh, he saw me work and knew that I was interested in, you know, I was working in Cincinnati at the time, hmm. but I was, you know, kind of poised, ready to take another step. So he called me and he said, you should apply for this position. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, I think he also told Joan Lounsbury, who was the manager at that point, that you should reach out to this guy. <laughs> so I applied and, you know, we did all the phone interviews and all that stuff and um, got to the audition and had a wonderful audition with the singers and was lucky enough to get the job. But I came into a situation in which the chorus hadn't been auditioned for many years. It was The group was very large. There were, I think, 170 singers, something like that. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. But they were, they were, they were in need of discipline and some uh, discipline, (laughs) (laughs) you know, encouragement certainly, but, but um, yeah, we needed to, we needed to raise the standard, the artistic standard um, Mm -hmm. quite a bit. The, The whole organization needed to. So uh, that's how I got here to uh, Milwaukee. In fact, the first year, so it, it, it was it had been a part-time job. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had a he had a large church job, and he also taught Latin. I think many people <laughs> in the city will remember him. Um, uh, he he was music, uh, organist and choir master at one of the large Catholic mm-hmm. churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I got the position here in Milwaukee, it was part-time. And so I said, I won't move here. Yeah. I'll, I'll commute up here. And that's what I did for uh, a whole season. I flew up wow. on, on uh, Wednesday. From Cincinnati. From Cincinnati. Yeah, yeah. I knew all the, I knew all the pilots sure. and all the, the attendants. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a bad flight. It was an hour and yeah. a half, I think, or something yeah. like that. Um, and airports weren't, you know, nearly the problem they are now. And, you know, I just jump on the plane and we go. And, yeah, why not? <laughs> uh, I, I, it was, it was really fun to leave one set of problems. I had an orchestra and a chorus, uh, in the Cincinnati area. So, you know, and they were in a very, very different place organizationally and artistically. Which one, okay. which one was that? So I did the, um, a group called the Cincinnati Choral Society. Oh, okay. Um, which that's another whole story. And then I also <laughs> conducted the Hamilton Fairfield Symphony, which is sure. still, both organizations are still doing well. Yeah. So um, I commuted for a year and then they finally decided they wanted me up there full time. So mm-hmm. I then moved for the second year of my directorship. Uh, I moved up yeah. and I've been here ever since. So this has really been the bulk of my adult career has been, mm-hmm you know, doing bel canto yeah. and, and then a variety of orchestras. I've done Waukegan Symphony mm. for, I don't, know, I don't know, six years, something like that. Then I did the Milwaukee Chamber Orchestra. I've guest conducted a number of the orchestras in the area and now I'm doing the Kettle Marine Symphony. Mm-hmm. So I've always wanted to balance choral conducting with orchestral conducting. Because sure. those are my two loves. Yeah. And with COVID now, I've gone back to working on my voice. Oh, that's an upside. Yeah. <laughs> Lindsay, I have loved doing that. 
And I really learned a lot. And I still don't think I could have ever had a career of any, of any import, but I'm singing better now than I ever have in my life. I love that. I mean, I'm excited by that. Yeah. So, so um, even COVID can't keep, you know, an artist down. You got to always find that thing to do. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, Belcanto famously has a Christmas program in the Basilica every year. Um, is that, is that, does that date back to before you? Did you pick up that tradition or, or is it something you created? Actually not. I created it. Yeah. yeah. And it's because I, I actually think back to the cathedral. Yeah. Because I grew up in that kind of space. I mean, mm-hmm. the, so the Basilica is not Gothic. It's more Romanesque. Yeah, but it's stunningly beautiful, and and it has the same kind of scope to it. Mm-hmm. You walk into that building and feel it's not a, a when you say you feel dwarfed, it, that's you know that has negative connotations, but mm-hmm. it, you feel perhaps a a better perspective with the universe. <laughs> you know, we we humans aren't so important when in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. When you walk into a building with that kind of, of dimension to it you and you see the space you you are appropriately humbled maybe yeah. that's and so um we did performances in there uh, on and off in the beginning of my directorship mm-hmm. and i always wanted to do a christmas program that um was like what we're doing now the christmas in the basilica but Belcanto was the messiah course when i arrived mm-hmm. Sure. And uh, the symphony didn't do it. It was Belcanto's thing. And we, that's, so for a number of seasons, three or four seasons, we did Messiah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I didn't want to do that. First of all, I didn't, I wasn't interested in repeating pieces every year. Every year, yeah. And yeah. when I took over Belcanto, Belcanto had only two concerts a season. One was always Messiah. And then the second one was off an opera excerpts or, you know, something that Jim wanted. Not a lot of variety. (laughs) Right, exactly. So I said, I want to do four concerts or six concerts, you know, six different programs during. And we've done that. We've done as many as six programs. Mm. But we, we finally settled on four as that ideal balance for, you know, the pressure to because I wanted to do challenging literature too. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so much great music out there. A lot of it not well known. So my thrust with Belcanto to to differentiate Belcanto from uh, the symphony chorus, mm-hmm. I chose to do um, choral literature that was not part of the typical, you know, um, 40 pieces yeah yeah and everybody knows so we didn't do messiah we didn't do uh brahms requiem we didn't now we have done i eased off of that because um you know a lot of times we just you know in good marketing you you know have to have something that will draw people in right and then you expose them to something they haven't tried yet Mm -hmm. Uh, so we will do some of those more popular pieces Mm -hmm. but uh, the symphony chorus was doing all of those. So, uh, you know, I chose to explore uh, 
Scandinavian music. We would do, you know, modern composers. I, we, we haven't uh, commissioned very often. Mm-hmm. I've explored second performances of numbers of works. So, Bel, you know, Bel Canto has ended up, I think this is uh, reasonable to say that uh, in my time with Bel Canto, we've done as, we've brought as many commissioned and new works mm-hmm. to and made Milwaukee premieres as present music. Sure, yeah. And because we've done so many new pieces, pieces mm-hmm. that aren't part of the, you know, the regular choral genre. Right. And I'm proud of that because I, what it's done is what, when the group then goes back to do a chestnut like Brahms Requiem or Verdi Requiem, it's like, you know, wow we know this piece (laughs) because we're so used to doing pieces. We don't know. Yeah. Uh, It really stretch you. Yeah. 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 You know, step right into a foreign requiem or a Brahms requiem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the benefit of for, for this Christmas program in, in normal years where you get to do a full, full set, set of uh, songs that uh, that's really an opportunity to explore living composers and uh, brand new pieces in a way that, you don't necessarily do on every other concert of the year, right? Where you have to dedicate a whole 60 or 90 minute program to one requiem or something. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So, um, so Christmas at the Basilica has really, we've done it for maybe a third of my career because it's, I think it's, this is our 12th season. I think that's right. 12th season doing Mm -hmm. it every year in the Basilica. Mm -hmm. Uh, and making that kind of a trademark event. Yeah. And it's grown. The first time we did it, we did just two, I think we did two performances. Then we went to three <laughs> for a couple of years and now we're at four and the four are selling out. So that's, yeah. you know, that's happy news. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this year has been different, obviously, a little bit different. <laughs> and, uh, but, but you took the opportunity to spend most of the fall uh, preparing a virtual choir uh, to present five Christmas pieces uh, in a in a program that'll come out uh, next Sunday. Is that right? Can you remind us of the time? Eighteenth. Yeah. Yep, that's right. I, yeah, we. I'm not sure exactly what time it will be, but it will be announced and mm-hmm. people can look forward to it. And then it'll be available for a while. Yeah. It's yeah. not just one once and done. Uh, but we wanted to maintain this tradition and not break the, the series that we've established. So um, in this time of COVID, um, the, the dangers of singing are particularly strong. The singers mm-hmm. are super spreaders for those of us who yep. aren't aware of that kind of thing. Um, and, and so in order to do anything that was safe as well as artistic, what I decided that we would do is create a hybrid rehearsal experience. Mm-hmm. So um, we are uh, balancing live in-person rehearsing with just a few singers. We had, well, we actually went down to from 14 to 12 singer, uh, uh, sorry, 10 singers. Mm-hmm. Um, when the mayor asked, for yeah. no more than 10 adults in a room and you know mm-hmm. so we did that um but even so we had so we had 14 singers who were in person masked and distanced 
We also moved rooms every 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. The HVAC system to clear the space of virus. And so we did everything possible to make the experience a safe one, Mm -hmm. but we were still able to gather uh, a critical mass of singers to rehearse. And that gave then the 50 other singers who were zooming in, you know, Mm -hmm. virtually to have a real rehearsal experience. Yeah. You know, the camera was on me and on the piano. So you could, you know, see me conducting and reading the rehearsal, but everybody could hear the chorus and they could hear, you know, different parts being worked on and and sing along at home Mm -hmm. and feel like they were a part of a chorus. Yeah. Yeah. Then the hard part came. So the, the, the 14 singers went to the Basilica, we recorded the five pieces, and then that was um, edited and mixed and sent out to the 50 virtual singers. And you did this, Lindsay, yourself. I, I did. So I much. did. No one should hear it solo, but I did. But well, I did. It'll, it'll blend in. Okay, I hope. Bless, bless your heart. Well, you did very well. I mean, you did very well. The, the deal is this. Choral singers have joined a chorus in order to lend their voice and to be a part of something that's bigger than they are. Right. And when they are then put in a position like we were this time, and we've done one other virtual choir experience, the choral singer is, although he's he or she is listening to uh, the other singers singing and they're singing along with that. Yeah. Nevertheless, they hear themselves uh, without the other voices uh, when they when they check out their tape, and yeah. I think that's that's not a part of the deal. When you Certainly not. <laughs> You're not supposed to be out there, you know, bare naked vocally. Yeah. And yeah. and uh, I think it's been very hard. I I submitted, you know, I I've submitted um, recordings too to yeah. just so I could see what it was like. Yeah. And it would take four or five takes before I was satisfied that this was going to be, you know, a worthy contribution. And it's hard as you're listening, you know, in an earbud and watching uh, me conduct to try to recreate a choral experience. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> but, so fun. I think, but fun yeah, nonetheless. It is, it is. And, and, you know, the good news about doing it this way now is that we're still creating a sense of connectedness Mm -hmm. you know we're still seeing each other on the zoom meeting we're still able to to interact musically and this is so this is uh well it's not anything we'd want to do you know going forward for this time for this covid time Mm -hmm. i think it is the best solution to to um to fill the fill the time until we can gather again yeah well i really enjoyed attending the virtual rehearsals and what was delightful about it was we were all muted of course because right. you know, if anyone hasn't tried you certainly cannot sing together on zoom <laughs> um but uh but your conducting was so much like your conducting in person. So, um, you know, we would get through, we would, you would focus in on one section, like you just want to hear the basses, the basses would sing, and you'd say after, oh, good job, basses. And it was just delightful. Obviously, you couldn't hear them, but you right. saw everyone in their little boxes, like giving it a go and trying, and trying to participate fully from home. So it was a delightful 
um, reminder of normal, more normal times, um, and and a good and a good replacement to have something scheduled uh, that you that you set aside time to make music, even if it's just you and in your home. Um, but was a really, I think, welcome respite for for singers this fall. Yeah, yeah. So I am, my sense is that we'll have to do this. I mean, I'm certainly planning to do mm -hmm. at least one more virtual uh, hybrid uh, rehearsal process sure. for a March program, March or April. <clears throat> we normally do a March concert. So that's kind of where I'm aiming. Mm -hmm. And then I'm hoping by May, we'll still have to stream or, or you know, somehow broadcast a concert. I, I, I don't have faith that audiences will be ready to come back yeah, in sufficient sure. numbers to mm -hmm. make it worthwhile trying to have a live performance. Yeah. <clears throat> but it does make sense to me to offer um, these broadcasted, re recorded yes. and broadcasted concerts yeah. um, for us, for, you know, for you and me to be able to make music and feel mm -hmm. like we're, still doing what we need to do to express ourselves artistically and then uh finding that audience that that's hungry for that yeah yeah so and honestly lindsay i think what will happen is that some element of streaming some virtual element will carry forward yeah we'll go back to live performance there's no question about it and certainly live rehearsing right but why not have uh, a Zoom connection, you know, the portal set up so that people who are sick, mm -hmm. you know, don't try to come to rehearsal and cough all over everybody, you know, right. they, they can have a cold. I mean, it doesn't yeah. have to be COVID. It can be flu. Just normal times. Yeah. Right, <laughs> normal exactly. sicknesses. Yeah. But yeah. People, I think one of the, th one of the things culturally that mm -hmm. we will uh, discover is that people will not fight to go to work. Right. Or go to school or go to whatever they're supposed to go to when they're sick anymore. Right. If you're sick, you'll stay home. Do what that, you need to do at home. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a huge, that's a huge change. Mm -hmm. And so I think there are all, all sorts of opportunities for sectionals for, you know, for people who are, who are sick, who can zoom into the rehearsal. Yeah. And then in performance, I would imagine that there will be some element of streaming. Mm -hmm. So that if audience members are sick or if people are out of state or mm -hmm. we could potentially, we all could build uh, global audiences right. uh, through the internet. Right. Mm -hmm. And that to me is probably some, the, the most important thing to look forward to mm -hmm. rather than, yeah, yes, we're so sad and, and frustrated that we can't perform live right now, mm -hmm. but what is it that we're doing now that will actually carry forward into the future mm -hmm. that will enhance that live performance experience that we all love yeah well and it's uh it's i think forced a bit of rapid acceleration in a way that that many might have been a little fearful of before because i i think um you know just in terms of streaming virtual performances there's been a bit of in some cases there's a bit of hesitation of are we still going to draw the same live crowd? Um, is it worth the startup costs? It can be very expensive to get everything that you need. Um, but as a result of pandemic, 
that's been the that's been the push. And so now that that infrastructure will exist, or or we've gotten over a little bit of that mental barrier, <laughs> and um, and you have to think that it can be to the benefit of, of exactly. us moving forward. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, I I think that that what will happen is that as as um, law, laws will change. You know, right now the the um, broadcast laws are. <laughs> very restrictive and they've already relaxed a lot to allow people to stream things right. because there's just no other access. Right. And I, I think that's been one of the biggest hindrances to artistic, you know, to, to concert performance mm -hmm. is that, um, is that the, the uh, performance requirements, the, the contractual, um, limitations of you know rebroadcast or right. you know, are, are, have just been prohibitive, especially for groups like Belcanto. Mm -hmm. um, but you look now at um, organizations like the Met, the Metropolitan Opera, and um, Berlin, mm -hmm. uh, Berlin Philharmonic. They now have global audiences, literally. I mean that that right. subscribe for the for their uh, video performances. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the healthiest ways arts can grow, not change. I don't think we'll ever not have live performance because there's nothing like live mm -hmm. performance right. for, for the listener and the performer. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, there's a synergy between the audience and the performer that, that changes, that, that you have to be there to experience. Yeah. But the next best thing is obviously zooming in or, or you know, watching a video. And, yeah. Um, the Met performances have been particularly striking to me because they do behind the scenes interviews and they, you know, that singer comes off stage and you talk to the singer and they're still panting from the big aria they just said. <laughs> you know, that, that brings an excitement that you can't get in the live concert experience. Right, right. You know, because you're not backstage. So that, that's where we're heading in a much accelerated way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I think that's good. So is the, is the program for our Christmas concert a surprise to the audience or is there anything you want to share about what people, what a piece, share a little bit more about one of the pieces oh, or a few of the pieces yeah. that you chose and. <laughs> I'm happy to, I'm happy to tell everybody what I chose. So I chose five works because I thought we could, you know, we could handle all the technological issues as well as the rehearsal issues in the time a lot. Mm -hmm. The five pieces are, uh, you know, two are very familiar. Mm -hmm. And people will, will know that, know, do you hear what I hear? And, you know, the other one is the Carol of the Bells. Mm -hmm. uh, those are actually, uh, 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 do you hear what I hear is pretty easy to incorporate because of the piano accompaniment. But Carol of the Bells is wicked. Yeah. It's tough, you know, the, as you know, the Sopranos is, uh, you know, they, Sopranos have nowhere to breathe. The altos and the tenors are, are singing practically constantly. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's lining that up, you know, without lots of extra S's or lots of, you know, breaths in inappropriate mm -hmm. places of, uh, that make that piece so difficult. And then I chose two works. And interestingly enough, they both were written in 2011. Mm -hmm. uh, one is a piece by Dan Forrest called uh, A Christmas Lullaby. And the other is a piece of mine called um, My Dancing Day. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
the the forced piece is just a, it's a lovely uh, you know chorale like piece that I think um, is extraordinarily rich in in the harmonic texture. I think mm -hmm. people will love that, and I don't think it's not well known at all. And my piece isn't well known either. It's a it's it's an arrangement that I did, but I um, uh, well I, I took the text that had already been written, but and, and I wrote the music and, and arranged it, but I also, I wrote my own third verse because they want, I didn't have enough verses. Yeah. So I decided, well, I'll write one. And so I, so that third verse, when you, when you think back on it or when the audience hears it, they just know oh, that's, uh, so there's a connection to that, you know, 15th century text <laughs> that I updated a little bit. Um, and then, then I, decided that we would do a virtual performance or a hybrid performance of Michelle Hinson's, my wife Michelle's mm -hmm. um, Silent Night arrangement. Mm -hmm. um, and it, that's a piece that I think has become a signature work for Bel Canto. Um, I think it's a great arrangement, certainly. And mm -hmm. it's one that is always an audience favorite. Mm -hmm. And so, um, it just made sense that we should try it in this new format. Mm -hmm. um, we'll always do it as part of the Christmas in the Basilica series, right. um, but, but we needed to do it virtually as well. So those are the five pieces. Now I'm also going to put in from, from past performances, we'll mm. put in videos of a couple of the um, sing-along carols we do. Oh, sure. Yeah. I'm, quite, I, I'm thinking of, of um, either Okamai Faithful, Joy to the world, carols like that, you know, yeah. Christmas songs like that that people really know. Yeah. And so we'll have opportunities for people to sing along, and then we'll end with the the one surprise I'll keep is the is the um, the finale, mm, mm -hmm. uh, and that that everybody will will hear hear the encore and perhaps get a good laugh. So. Oh, I can guess, but I won't. I won't share with our listeners. <laughs> you just have to tune in. You just exactly right. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, the the thing about Christmas at the facility is that it's it's always been kind of Belcanto's love letter to the community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, the carols that we do, the programming that we do, the involvement of the audience through sing-alongs, the 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 marriage of the beautiful sacred space to this and this time of year with the beautiful music we do is all part and parcel of what it means for an arts group to serve a community. I mean, yeah. I think we, you know, Bel Canto has worked hard to be, to be the voice um, uh, of the community, mm -hmm. uh, that corporate voice. And so, mm. so Christmas in the, in the Basilica is certainly a good example of that. Yeah. So let's zoom out a bit. Okay. <laughs> We've heard a lot about about you and Belcanto, and I wanna I wanna zoom out to what your what your perspective is about Milwaukee's arts and culture at large. Um, what do you think are your dreams for the future of it beyond COVID? Um, and what are some what are some areas that are of strength that make you really proud to be part of the Milwaukee arts and culture community at large? What a great question. Uh, it's a, that's a whole discussion in and of itself. <laughs> Having been here for uh, it'd be 30, oh, well, it's 32 years now, mm -hmm. I've seen so many changes in the arts community. Um, you know, groups 
get bigger, groups go away, groups, you know, but what has been uh, so exciting to see is, uh, first of all, the symphony finally getting its own hall. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that will be a huge shot in the arm for the arts community, just because there is now a new venue that is specifically designed for the orchestra. And I think that will be um, a, a huge uh, step forward for the whole arts community because, mm -hmm. you know, so uh, as goes the symphony, so goes the rest of the, the arts community and the, the music community. Mm -hmm. um, I think Florentine has, um, uh, has an exciting new artistic director and it'll be fun to see what she does in the next few years. There's a lot of newness going on. It, um, uh, Kevin Stahlheim is retired, and so um, Present Music has a new um, artistic team. Mm -hmm. uh, Eric Segnitz, who's been with the group for many, many years, in fact, was a founder with Kevin, but he's still involved. And we have a, the, the new music director from New York, David Bloom. Uh, we have some of the smaller groups that have really uh, exploded in the last few years. And I'm thinking primarily of Frankly Music mm -hmm. is doing really well, but Mosaic is another one that I'm excited to see developing. You know, symphony players who, um, while they are making music in grand spaces with the full orchestra, they, they also are remarkable chamber musicians. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these, these various sized groups, ensembles are designed to allow them to play um, in these more intimate settings with more intimate repertoire. Yeah. I think that's really exciting. You know, there are a couple of choral groups that have sprung up. The Milwaukee Chamber Chorus is one. The um, um, Chanclair is another, mm. another chorus that I think has really taken um, a good foothold in the arts community and is trying to find its way, find its niche. Mm -hmm. uh, We'll see. COVID has done some mm. serious damage to everybody's momentum. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. Uh, and so it'd be interesting to see as we come out of COVID in the next year or two, mm -hmm. who's, who is still at a place where they can keep going, who will hit the ground running, right. who will struggle to get going. Yeah. There's been a lot of churn with the Milwaukee Children's Chorus and um, I think they have, they also have new leadership and they're working hard to create experiences, even in the, even in COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, my, I'm very excited to see how that evolves. Yeah. So from my perspective, what we've seen in, in the last five years or so, a real changing of the guard. I'm, mm. you know, I remember coming as, as the young upstart and now I'm kind of the old guy <laughs> who's watching <laughs> You know, new artistic director for the symphony, new artistic director yeah. for the new artistic director for MCC, new artistic, I mean, just go down the list and yeah. everything's new. And mm -hmm. all of that energy is going to create incredible momentum yeah. for the arts here. Yeah. You know, weaknesses, well, well um, that, well, there's one other really strong aspect to the Milwaukee arts community, and that's UPAC. Mm -hmm. you know, the United Performing Arts Fund, at, at, at one point, it may still be the largest performing arts fund in the country. Right, right. And that, that's a huge um, feather in the cap of a community of less than a million. I mean, you know, 
Milwaukee is 650,000 people, something like that. Yeah. Now you add in the surrounding communities, we can maybe make a million. Well, look at Chicago, look at Minneapolis, St. Paul. I mean, those millions and millions of people. Mm-hmm. And yet our performing arts fund is the largest. Yeah. The, only, the second largest is LA. I think the LA fund. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But all of that is to say that, you know, I think our community is... Um, one of the strongest in terms of continuing support for the arts mm-hmm. and artists will always do what artists do, but if they can do them in nice concert halls with good support from the community, yeah, uh, everybody benefits. So yeah. UPAF has been an incredible asset mm-hmm. to the arts community. And I think that's, that's been their goal all mm-hmm. along. What are the problems we face? Well, you know, a, I've already mentioned one is, is just our size mm-hmm. because the, the, there's so much artistic activity in this city. Even a dedicated concert goer could not consume half of what's available each, sure. each season. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's a problem is that we can't grow our audience because there's just not that many to, to spread out amongst all the arts groups. Um, that's not really a liability. It's just a reality of, mm-hmm. of our size community. Mm-hmm. Um, so this internet, you know, the streaming options may allow us to be become larger than than our our in person life allows us right now. Right, right. Well, and the you're you're sharing about some of the the newer and smaller organizations, even just within the classical music world, um, really puts a fine point on the reminder that the extent to which over the next few months we can continue to push for more relief funding uh, from city, state, and county, (laughs) the extent to which we can continue uh, to make sure that UPAF is supported substantially um, by individuals and corporations, then that's, that's key to survival, certainly, but also, but also having the, the, the funds and the infrastructure to, to start back up, to, to start exactly. back up uh, contributing to, to our city as soon as we can and <laughs> not have a, not have a delay or anything. So, yeah. Exactly right. Well, and, and yeah, the arts tend to follow the rest of the economy in terms of, of success or failure you know, because um, so much of arts funding is, is developed from corporate, foundations and foundation state funding mm-hmm. uh, county funding uh, and that all it follows success mm-hmm. so when the economy is booming people tend to give more individuals give more foundations are less are, are not inundated with so many requests and mm-hmm. therefore have to divide you know a limited pile of dollars amongst so many i mean mm-hmm. that's Mm-hmm. One of the bains of artistic existence here actually is good for the audience is that the the groups in Milwaukee have to be so good and have to fight so hard for every dollar mm-hmm. that the you know it you know the, everybody is is artistic quality is is raised up by that competition right right uh, but when the economy is uh, is abysmal. You know, when we were at 2007, you know, when when mm-hmm. the the economy was in such deep recession, mm-hmm. uh, we 
and even after after the the business economy started to pull out of that and and money was flowing the stock market was doing fine but the arts were still struggling terribly because funding always lags six months to a year behind the economy right so we're, we're i it's not going to be over for the arts groups in six months mm -mm. or a year maybe two to three years right uh, and you know unless the rest of the business economy realizes that we are part of why everybody works so hard we are why people have great quality of life here in milwaukee mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know it's it's that vibrant art community it's the great parks it's the you know all of the aspects of of living graciously that we live in a city like milwaukee yeah yeah and and so you know the arts play a role in that and they all do i mean you know the burner botanical gardens you know the mso florentine bel canto the ballet mm -hmm. you know, think of all the richness we have and i've been i've actually been pretty heartened by the way people have responded to you know the understanding that right now the arts simply don't really yeah. exist except in a peripheral way and yet mm -hmm. people are still um realizing that we're in a placeholder period and so we'll but the money needs to come you know because mm -hmm. otherwise uh we'll lose you know the the great artists in the mso the great artists in the ballet the people that that um are in such demand because of the quality of their art making um if they can't make a living here they'll go somewhere else and be welcome right so you know we have to defend and and i think we are mm -hmm. um to a large extent through upath and other means mm -hmm. protecting our arts community by offering ppp offering the various mm -hmm. uh, the various uh local and state funds that are helping the arts groups yeah and i think individuals are stepping up in a way they might not have um known to before you know like finding their voice in in writing to the representatives yes through Imagine, um, you know, thousands of people writing exactly. in a way that it might, you know, it, Wisconsin has always been at a disadvantage <laughs> when it comes to public support, but it's never been more stark now. And it's also never been a better time for people to right. um, maybe write to their, write to their representatives for the first time about it, um, right. become advocates. Yeah. I agree. Advocacy is, is I, I think people feel like they do have a voice so much more than they did in the past. I think mm -hmm. social media has, has uh, helped to develop that. I think people are uh, engaged with their representatives. And yeah. boy, I, I would certainly put in a plea, as I know you do every day, <laughs> that you know the, the arts community may not seem as high on the list of, of needs as food and shelter and clothing, and, and yet, uh, without the arts, there is no soul to life. You know, mm -hmm. that life becomes existence and not life. Well, it has been such a joy to talk to you today. Thank you. Lindsay. Well, thank you again, Rick. What a pleasure.
Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe by searching Arts Forward MKE on your favorite listening platform or go to imaginemke.org slash podcast. Also, be sure to check out our other two podcasts, Imagine This Podcast and Black Imagination, and follow us on social, on Facebook as Imagine MKE, and on Instagram and Twitter as at Imagine underscore MKE. Be well, friends. Thank you.